five, four, three, two, one. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside You. I'm your host, Xavier Audic, and we are back for Power 5 Monday. As usual and as expected, another huge weekend of college football. So let's get right into it. First things first, as always, I was right and I was wrong. And this weekend when I was right and I was right and when I was wrong, boy, was I wrong. So I was right that Stanford would defeat Arizona State. 20-13 to 13 the final score there, a Thursday night game. The real story here came down to Arizona State's history with racking up a number of passing interference penalties. Also, there was a very unfortunate running into the kicker penalty on the Sun Devils and the turnovers by the Sun Devils. Very much an interesting game in that both of these teams had marquee victories early in the season. Stamps, remember, defeated Oregon who at the time many people thought would be a legitimate Pac-12 North champion contender. Arizona State, the first team to really crack the Michigan State Spartan puzzle. However, since that time, both programs have very much underperformed, even with Stanford having won that game with the other victories this season with Washington defeating Colorado and Washington State defeating Oregon. They're still very much behind them, and they are now in the passenger seat in the Pac-12 North. So it should be interesting to see what happens from here, but... The Cardinals did get the job done. Then I was wrong that Washington State would lose to Oregon. The final score, that 34 to 20. The real story, Washington State at halftime up 27 to 0. While the Ducks were able to make it competitive in the second half, Gardner Minshew, a very impressive performance, able to seal the deal. And Washington State was able to give their fans a victory while hosting ESPN's college game day for the first time. Then, I was right that Michigan would defeat Michigan State. Final score there, 21-7. to And the real story here, if you're a Spartans fan, is the loss of Felton Davis to a non-contact injury, an Achilles injury. Remember, the Spartans receiving core has already been decimated by injuries. Cody Weiss suffering a broken hand. And with an offense that has struggled all year, you do not want to lose another important weapon there. Brian Lewerke, an unimpressive 66 yards on 5 for 25 throwing, although he did say that he was struggling from a shoulder injury, possibly could have impacted his accuracy. And if you're a Spartans fan, now there's not a lot to get excited about, especially with Penn State this weekend. Then, I was wrong that USC would defeat Utah. Final score there, 41-28. Utah now in first place of the Pac-12 South. Kyle Winningham team getting the job done. Going into the season, the Utah one of my sleeper teams in the Pac-12 South, really the only thing that prevented me from picking them to win the South was just their schedule looked just unfathomable at the time. They're one of the few programs in the Pac-12 to retain both their head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and their starting quarterback in Brett Hundley. JT Daniels for the Card for the Trojans, not impressive. Six for 16. Also, after the game, Clay Helton said that he could possibly be making a change there in the coming few days. Matt Fink did come into the game and relieve Daniels, and it should be interesting to see where the Trojans go from here. Certainly at four and three, Clay Helton has to be feeling the heat. If he cannot find a way to win the Pac-12 South, they might just be making a move at USC pretty soon. Then, I was right that Clemson would defeat NC State. Final score there, 41-7. to Trevor Lawrence, 308 yards. And after everything the Tigers have been through, a good, nice signature win for them over an undefeated NC State team. Going into it, I want to point out that NC State really hadn't been tested. Their game against West Virginia was canceled because of Hurricane Florence, but still the Tigers able to add another victory over an undefeated team to their resume. Then I was wrong that Temple would lose to Cincinnati. Final score there, 24-17 in overtime. Cincinnati definitely had their moments to 
win that one. They were leading with a few minutes left in the fourth quarter, but Temple was able to put together a tying drive, able to win in overtime following a Cincinnati interception. Certainly a huge and impressive victory for Temple, who after starting the season out 0-3, has now come back to 5-3, and and they are undefeated in the American East, setting up a very interesting rest of the season there in that American East division. Certainly going to come down to UCF, South Florida, and now them, it looks like. Then, I was right that Washington would defeat Colorado. Final score there, 27-13. to LaVishka Chenault's presence was certainly missed for the Buffaloes. Washington continuing to move along, and it looks like now the Apple Cup will have added importance when Washington takes on Washington State to end their season. Very possible that the winner of that game goes to the Pac-12 championship game. Then I was wrong that Lane Kiffin's Florida Atlantic Owls would defeat Marshall. Final score there, 31-7. to Just not what you want to see. Chris Robertson, the Owls quarterback, 18 for 35. And Kiffin right now struggling. Remember, Kiffin entered the season with a lot of hype. Looked like he would be springboarding back to a Power 5 job very soon. But certainly right now the Owls are not what you wanted from them. The offense in many ways has struggled with the loss of Jason Driscoll, who chose to end his college career early. And Kiffin now looks like he'll be spending another year at the group of five level before moving on. Then I was right that LSU would defeat Mississippi State. Final score there, 19-3. to Joe Burrow continuing to do just enough to get the job done. Only 129 yards. The real story for the Tigers was Devin White being given a targeting penalty that will keep him out the first half of LSU's showdown against Tennessee. That game very much could decide the winner of the SEC West. The Tigers now, as well as the Crimson Tide, have a week off before that big game, which fortunately does take place in Death Valley. Then, I was wrong that Oregon State would defeat Cal. Final score there, a just astonishing 49-7. to Patrick Laird, the impressive Cal running back, 193 total yards. Then, I was right that Kentucky would defeat Vanderbilt. Final score there, 14-7. to Benny Snell putting his name back in Heisman Trophy contention, 169 yards. Great to see the Wildcats win, and that is only making that showdown with Georgia in the next few weeks all the more impressive. Then, I was right that UCLA would defeat Arizona. Final score there, 31-30. Very possible if Wildcats starting quarterback Khalil Tate had played in the game that Arizona would have won. The real story for the Bruins is the extent of starting quarterback Dorian Thompson Robinson's injury. Although he did come back in the game, he did look shaky. Wilden Spates finally saw some playing time after suffering an injury in the opener for the Bruins. And now they have a huge game Friday against Utah. Both teams on winning streaks at the moment. And it should be a lot closer than people expect. Weird things happen on Friday nights in the Pac-12. And then I was right that Buffalo would defeat Toledo. Final score there, 31-17. to Tyree Jackson, a very impressive 326 yards of offense. Buffalo continuing to show themselves as one of the top programs at the group of five level. And then I was right that Houston would defeat Navy. Final score there, 49-36. to Certainly now Houston looks like they're on their way to the American Championship game, the American Conference Championship game. And Derek King continuing to show what he can do. The converted wide receiver, 413 yards of total offense. Then, lastly, I was right that SMU would defeat Tulane. Final score there, 27-23. Ben Hicks, 291 yards. And Sonny Dykes' program finally appears to have gone themselves moving in the right direction. So, 
I was 11 and five last weekend. Obviously, when I was wrong, I was really wrong. But overall, still net positive. Should be interesting to see what happens this weekend. So that moves us along to the top storylines in college sports. First thing I want to discuss is Nick Bosa, the former Ohio State defensive lineman. If you haven't seen it yet, I also put a video up on YouTube discussing this. But the short version is Nick Bosa entered the season in one of the most highly rated prospects in all of college football, already on a number of watch lists as a potential first-round pick in this year's NFL draft. Unfortunately, he suffered a core muscle injury in one of Ohio State's games. Following that injury, he required surgery, and while initially it looked like he'd only be out for a few weeks, in fact, he will be out six to eight weeks. After that was announced, now it looked like that rather than being gone for just a short period of time, Bosa would likely only be able to return for the last two games of the season for the Buckeyes, or more likely the college football playoff. Now, already those plants took a hit when Ohio State suffered an upset loss to Purdue this last weekend. But then looking at Nick Bosa and his plans, you have to look at this from a bigger perspective. The only reason a player of his caliber goes to an Ohio State or a Texas or a Michigan is to make themselves the best possible NFL prospect. Then once you become a prospect, you want to create your draft stock and rise it to as high as possible. In his case, he already is consistently the number one rated prospect in this year's NFL draft. And with the lack of top quarterback talent outside of Oregon's Justin Herbert, he very much has a possibility of being the number one overall pick. If he were to fall from that due to an injury, I doubt Ohio State would cover the difference. Furthermore, when looking at players who continued to play or hung it up early, I view there being three players that are you can model it after. You have a guy like Bryce Levitt Stanford, who started last season just on a complete tear, was playing at a level worthy of a first-round pick, but after suffering that high ankle sprain has never looked the same, and now he has to play to show that he is not a fluke. Then you've got LSU running back Leonard Fournette, who, to quote the famous and infamous college sports movie, the program was hurt but not injured. He ultimately did play in LSU's bowl game and fortunately did not suffer an injury, but certainly had some NFL teams scared, and he did end up going in the first round to Jacksonville. Then we've got a guy like Marcus Latimer, the former South Carolina running back, who was definitely a first-round pick, but after suffering a gruesome leg injury, knee injury, excuse me, against Tennessee, dropped to the fourth round. He's not even playing football anymore. And then finally, the situation most analogous to Bosa's, Former Stanford running back Christian McCaffrey. McCaffrey, remember, sat out Stanford's bowl game. Not a big bowl game to begin with, but he did end up sitting out. And really similar to Bosa, he had done everything possible to increase his draft stock. There really was no reason for him to play the game. It wasn't going to cause a team to pick him or draft him earlier than probably they would have. Really, the only thing that could have happened was that he would fall similar to Bosa's. His decision to hang it up now and just focus on his rehab and getting ready for the NFL draft solely has to do with him being smart. It is a business decision, and it should weigh nothing towards whether he is or is not a team player. So that moves us along to a bit of a fun story. In case you missed it, Duke starting quarterback Daniel Jones suffered a broken collarbone earlier in the season. Fortunately, it was not his throwing shoulder, so he was able to come back sooner rather than later. He's already back to playing. But one of the reasons why he was able to beat his initial expectation of being out six weeks was because two Duke players, his teammates, went to Duke's 3D printing lab and assisted them in the creation of a specially designed collarbone brace for Jones. 
Certainly a fun story there. Definitely possible. Love to see these types of stories where you're seeing guys who, while they're there for one thing, are putting their degrees use in other areas. I just think it's a fun story about teammates stepping up for their starting quarterback and assisting them and ultimately their team. Then probably the biggest story in college football right now, the Pac-12 conference just won't get out of its way. In case you missed it, the Pac-12 conference is very much in disarray right now, struggling to kind of figure its way out of the various scandals that have plagued it coming into the year. Entering the year, they were under a lot of heat because of them going 1-8 and eight in bowl games last season. Since that time, they were named many times in the pay-for-play scandal, the biggest person being named being Arizona's DeAndre Ayton. Entering the season, though, Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott was able to shake off most of these issues just kind of saying yeah whatever they happen and the hope was that once the football actually started being played that people would forget about them but unfortunately it appears that the pac-12 is inept and unable to get out of its own way the most recent controversy involving targeting targeting is a penalty where if a player hits another player at with their head specifically helmet to helmet from the direct angle or if a situation where they use their helmet as a weapon, or they uh, wind up to create a higher rate of force than normal. Basically, they're turning themselves into a weapon to just solely injure the person. They can be thrown out of the game and suffer a half-game suspension or more in the next week's game. The Pac-12 is at the forefront of the targeting penalty under the guise of increasing player safety. But this year, that already has been tested. In Washington State's football game against USC, a Washington State linebacker hit USC quarterback JT Daniels with what appeared to be a targeting-like hit. While targeting was not called on the field, it was ruled a targeting penalty by the review booth and was confirmed as a targeting penalty by the command center in San Francisco. However, Woody Dixon, a non-officiating member Rather, simply just the general counsel and a senior vice president of the Pac-12 called in from home and said that it wasn't targeting, overruling the command center and the booth. Naturally, this caused quite a stir when this information was revealed by Yahoo Sports. Since that time, and what made this even more important was that later in the game, Gardner Minshew, Washington State's starting quarterback, suffered what again looked like a targeting hit from USC linebacker Porter Gustin. In this case, though, targeting was not called on the field, it was not called by the review booth, and it was not called by the command center. In my opinion, this probably dealt with them being unsure of what targeting was after the earlier play was overruled by Dixon. They probably did not want to risk another situation where Dixon called in and said it was not, in fact, targeting. What makes this even more important is that barring that play and had it been called targeting, Washington State would have had the ball on their 10-yard line excuse me, on USC's 10-yard gun with a few minutes to go, very likely they could have won that game. Following that, had they won that game and with their victory last weekend over Oregon, the Cougars would be undefeated and definitely a fringe college football playoff contender. Remember, the Pac-12 did not make the playoff last season, and they've continued to struggle in performing in the postseason sector. Now, what makes this even more interesting was that in the last few days, a series of text messages from Washington State head coach Mike Leach to various members of the Pac-12 hierarchy were released following a freedom of information request by Yahoo Sports. 
that information was available because Leach is a public employee at a public university. Those Leach text messages from Leach revealed consistently his calling out the Pac-12 for their stances, claiming to be at the forefront of player safety, yet at the same time doing things like this. Also, he even suggested that the Pac-12 hierarchy might be trying to influence games, citing one example where Washington State's band was asked to stop playing so loudly. In many ways, to me, these text messages were very informative in that I like seeing a head coach, especially when they're doing something that they believe is in the best interest of their players and their players' safety. What was alarming to me, though, was that every one of Leakes' matches appeared to be met with a kind of like, Oh, there's just Mike Leach being lied to Leach again. Now, to be fair, Leach is known for his erratic behavior. He's gone into Twitter spats with fans, and he's kind of just an eccentric guy. This is a guy that wrote a book about pirates called Swing Your Sword. But to also Leach's credit, I do appreciate a head coach coming to the defense of his players, especially when it involves their health and safety. Should be very interesting to see how this whole thing plays out. You, the Pac-12 has already announced that they're changed their review process so that no outside influence will be allowed going forward but this just continues to add to the recent scandal of controversies that are continuing to deter focus on the pac-12 from the product on the field to these off the field issues which really is a shame because it's in my opinion detracting from what's one of the most entertaining pac-12 football races of recent in the north you very much have a four-team situation where Stanford, Oregon, Washington, and Washington State are all very much in it. The Apple Cup this year could very well decide who comes out of the North and makes it to the Pac-12 championship game. In the South, Utah's in the lead following defeating USC this last weekend, but USC's right behind them, and UCLA has shown life recently, and Arizona State's always going to be interesting, especially with Herm Edwards back. All of this should result in there being more focus and positivity on what's going on on the field, but unfortunately these controversies off the field have continued to detract from the play. Furthermore, when looking at this going forward, the Pac-12, what has plagued the Pac-12, in my opinion, has been just consistently the lack of parity among the league. Typically, it's USC and then everybody else. As I just mentioned, this year is one of the first years where I really feel like any team could still, in theory, win the Pac-12, and that should keep fan bases engaged longer. Fans in the Pac-12 are distinct from fans in the SEC in that the moment that their team stops winning, they stop showing up. You can see this if you've seen any of the photos from UCLA's football games this year. They're terrible. Also, if you look at USC, a school that's still very much in the running for the Pac-12 South, their stadium most likely will be half empty the rest of the season, except for possibly the UCLA and Notre Dame games. So, Larry Scott, Pac-12 commissioner, get your conference in order, please. They need it. Then, this last weekend, the Michigan State-Michigan football game, a lot of controversy going on here. Started off when Michigan State walked onto the field to do their pre-game ritual of walking from end zone to end zone arm in arm. Unfortunately, there was a timing mix-up, so some Michigan players were are still out on the field warming up, thinking that Michigan State had already gone through their ritual. However, they hadn't. This resulted in some back and forth among the players, and later Michigan linebacker Devin Bush digging his cleat into the Spartan logo, defacing it, 
and requiring that a Michigan State employee then go out and fix the logo. I don't like this for a number of reasons. I understand it's a rivalry game, and I understand that emotions are flying high and that there is bad blood between these teams, but really the only thing that Bush's actions did was require that an employee go out and do more work. I think it's inexcusable. I'd like to see Harbaugh hold him accountable for his actions. That type of stuff does not belong in college football. That is that. So with this being on the second half of the season, we're going to start seeing teams making a change at the head coaching position. Very interesting year in that many of the rumored teams that could be making changes are very much hamstringed by the large buyouts. They would have to pay their head coach. Obviously, Louisville, Bobby Petrino being the biggest example right now, him being due around $14 million, $15 million appears to be the reason why he's keeping his job for the time being. Furthermore, looking at the lower levels, a lot of the prospects that I thought we thought were going to work their way up, like Brian Harrison at Boise State, or obviously Lane Kiffin at Florida Atlantic, have kind of underperformed. That puts a little bit of a damper on bringing them in as your new head coach. The one exception there being Scott Satterfield at Appalachian State, who, if they can continue to perform the way they have, they finally were ranked in the top 25 for the first time all season this last week, could possibly work his way up the ladder. Also, Charlie Strong at South Florida, I've continued to be impressed with and hot on because of his former experience at Texas, but I don't think he's able to move on quite quickly from there. And then you could arguably say that Josh Hoople at UCF could be a hot name, but I think with him just having gotten there and with how his previous head coaching experience ended, it's going to take a little bit longer. However, when we're looking at the Power 5 level, there's three coaches that I really think could be on the move. And they are all very intriguing names. The first one being Dino Babers at Syracuse. Syracuse obviously appears very happy with Babers, very much committed to him as their head coach. But I wonder if Babers might be interested in seeing what he could do at a Blue Blood program. Then, Jeff Brom at Purdue. Purdue, remember, just pulled off a huge upset over Ohio State this last weekend. Brom consistently has been linked to the Louisville job, but with Petrino appearing to have that job for the time being. I wonder if another school might swoop in and beat Louisville to the punch. Lastly, then Mike Leach, Washington State's head coach. He consistently has been one of the best performing coaches on the field. This past weekend being another example, his Cougars beating Oregon, but his kind of essential personality has kept some schools away. Now, what makes all these head coaches interesting at these, these are already power five head coaches. So for them to move on would probably require that a legitimately blue blood like program come in like a Texas or a Tennessee or an LSU. And I think that's also probably one of the reasons, only reason why these coaches would want to move on because they're already at a situation where they can meet those expectations to keep their job for the foreseeable future. The only reason they would want to move on is because rather than being the third or fourth best team in the ACC in the case of Dino Babers, maybe he wants to know what it's like to have the talent of Clemson. Or in the case of Mike Leach, maybe he wants to know what it's like to have the talent and resources of a USC. Or in a Jeff Brown, maybe he doesn't want to have to chase Michigan State and Michigan and Ohio State. So these guys already have been linked before to different head coaching vacancies. In Dino Babers' case, he's already has served as a head co- as a assistant at Arizona in the past. Definitely could see them moving on from Sumlin sooner rather than later there if the recent trend continues, but would be very interesting to see what happens. I don't see these guys moving on right now, but definitely would not be surprised if they move along going forward. Then 
And that takes us to this weekend's games. Now, on paper, it does not appear to be as interesting a weekend as last weekend, but these are a lot of sneaky games this weekend that could end up deciding their conference as champions. So let's get right to it. Thursday night, we have Baylor traveling to West Virginia to take on the Mountaineers. West Virginia favored by 14 there. Both teams coming off a bye and both teams coming off close losses. Baylor having suffered a tight loss to Texas. West Virginia suffering that heartbreak loss to Iowa State. Very interesting to see how the Mountaineers respond here in a game where they have to win to keep their college football playoff hopes alive. I think the Mountaineers end up pulling out the victory there. While I like what I'm seeing from Charlie Brewer and this renewed Baylor program, they appear to still be about one year away from legitimately contending against the Big 12's better teams. Then also on Thursday night, we've got Georgia Tech traveling to Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech favored by three and a half there. Interesting game in that Georgia Tech last week, and even with having lost to Duke, certainly did have the Blue Devils on their toes for parts of that game. Final score there, 28-14. Virginia Tech, on the other hand, they defeated North Carolina. Final score there, 22-19. Certainly with the struggles that Bud Foster's defense has shown at Virginia Tech this year, the Yellow Jackets could win this game. But I think that Virginia Tech's offense will do just enough to get job, the job done there. Then on Friday night, we have an interesting ACC matchup between Miami and Boston College. Miami traveling to Boston College for that game. Miami favored by three and a half. Miami coming off that loss to UVA two weekends ago. Also, they made a move at quarterback going back to Malik Rosier. Boston College, on the other hand, coming off a win over Louisville. Final score there, 38 to 20. But the real story here will be whether Boston College running back A.J. Dillon plays. He's sat out the last two games because of an ankle injury. As of today, there hasn't been an update on his status, and without him, I don't like the Eagles' chances. Then, also on Friday, we have Utah traveling to Los Angeles to take on UCLA. Utah, they're favored by 10 points. Utah coming off an absolute bludgeoning of USC. Final score, they're 41-28. to UCLA, on the other hand, beat Arizona in a tight game, 31-30. Certainly on a winning streak for the first time all season, having won two games back-to-back. However, Utah just has more pieces and will get the job done here, although I do think it will be close. Weird things happen on Friday nights in the Pac-12. Then, finally on Saturday, Wisconsin traveling to Northwestern. Early in this season, this would have been a huge matchup. Wisconsin, though, only favored by six. Northwestern coming off a tight victory over a terrible Rutgers team. Final score there, 18-15. to Conversely, Wisconsin coming off a victory of a terrible Illinois team, 49-20, to the final score there. Northwestern quarterback Clayton Thorson is still recovering from that ACL tail he suffered in Northwestern's bowl game. Head coach Pat Fitzgerald has consistently said that when he does get healthy, he's going to be a monster on the field. But I think his lack of mobility and even with the Badgers having underperformed, they still get the job done there. Then we've got Vanderbilt traveling to Arkansas. Arkansas favored by only a point. Arkansas coming off a beating shutout of Tulsa, 23-0 the final score. Vanderbilt lost to Kentucky 14-7. Very interesting game in that Vanderbilt head coach Derek Mason has to string a couple of wins together, otherwise he likely will be gone to end this season. Arkansas, on the other hand, Chad Morris needs to win a couple of SEC games this year to show that they made the right choice in hiring him. I do think Kyle Schirmer is going to be the difference maker here, though, and that the Commodores will pull off the upset. Then, Texas Trek traveling to Iowa State. Iowa State favored by four. Texas Tech coming off a 48-16 victory over Kansas. Very impressive for this Texas Tech team. Very much a surging team 
one of Cliff Kingsbury's better teams, it appears like, and they've found a way to get the job done, even with having gone to their third-string quarterback already this season. Iowa State, on the other hand, coming off a bye after that huge upset of West Virginia. This, in many ways, is the matchup of backup quarterbacks. Iowa State quarterback Zeb Nolan was filling in for Brock Purdy. Excuse me, Brock Purdy is filling in for Zeb Nolan, who was filling in for Kyle Kemp. Texas Tech, Alan Bowman will be filling in for McLean Carter. And already they've had to go to Jet Duffy this season because of injuries. I think Cliff Kingsbury team gets the job done here. I think we're going to see Iowa State come in a little bit sluggish, probably a little hungover from that upset of West Virginia, and Cliff Kingsbury team will steal one. Then the world's biggest cocktail party takes place this weekend between Florida and Georgia. Georgia favored by a touchdown. This game very much will decide the SEC East, in my opinion. Florida very much has been a question of which Florida team shows up this year. They've, in some games, looked great. In other games, they've looked terrible. Felipe Franks, though, appears to be getting better this week. But I think we're going to see a renewed Georgia team coming off that upset loss to LSU. They're going to be focused. They're going to show up, and they're going to get the job done. Then we've got Iowa traveling to Penn State. Penn State, they're favored by five. Penn State coming off a victory over Indiana, 33-28. to very much a game that Penn State could have lost prior to a Jay Sean Harris fumble. It very much looked like Iowa, Indiana was going to come back and pull off the victory, but Trace McSorley got the job done. Iowa beating Maryland 23-0. This game I think people thought would be a lot more interesting to start the season, but even with Iowa being undefeated and Penn State having suffered those two losses, definitely takes some luster off the game. I think Trace McSorley and co. gets the job done. Although I do like what Noah Font and TJ Hawkinson and the rest of the Kirk Frentz and his staff has done with the Hawkeyes. And considering what we've seen from Wisconsin, there is a chance that if they were able to win the game, the Hawkeyes could still emerge from the Big Ten West. Then we've got Kentucky taking on Mizzou in a very interesting SEC West matchup. Even with Kentucky having the better record, they are still... The underdog here, Mizzou favored by six and a half. Kentucky coming off that victory over Vandy, 14 to seven. Showed up with a renewed Benny Snell, 169 yards. In my opinion, probably worked itself back into the Heisman Trophy conversation as much as possible with two attack of a low running away from it. Mizzou coming off a bludgeoning of Memphis, 66 to 33 there. Remember, Memphis took UCF to the wire a couple of weekends ago. The real story, though, is whether Mizzou's Best wide receiver Emmanuel Hall will end up playing in this game. He's still dealing with a groin injury that has kept him out the last few weeks. And without him, I think we're going to see Drew Locke struggle. Also, Mizzou, even with having the 25th best rushing defense in all of college football, I think the real story here is going to be Josh Allen, the Wildcats defensive end. He is a disruptive force off the edge. I think he's going to get to Locke a couple of times, frustrate him, and you're going to see the Wildcats sneak out a victory on the road. But I have consistently said that this is a tougher-than-expected game for the Wildcats, although I do think they'll still show up. Then we've got Wazoo taking on Stanford. Stanford favored by 3.5 there. Stanford coming off that close victory over ASU. A tighter game than I think many people expected. Wazoo coming off a victory over Oregon. Stanford, in many ways, has played worse every week this season. This is just not one of... David Shaw's better teams. Bryce Love continues to look like a shell of his former self. Wazoo, on the other hand, 
even with their defense being a concern, I think gets the job done here and just going to continue to move themselves forward in that Pac-12 North race. Then we've got Texas A&M traveling Mississippi State. Mississippi State favored by a field goal there. Mississippi State coming off that loss to LSU. A&M, on the other hand, coming off a bye. They're 21st in total defense. Mike Elko's team is legit. And with Mississippi State's offense essentially being one-dimensional, I think we're going to see Kellen Mond and Trayvon Williams connect a number of times and pull off the upset here. And that's only going to make Tennessee, excuse me, Texas A&M a bigger force in the SEC West. And then finally, in an interesting matchup because of the location, Notre Dame will be taking on Navy in San Diego. Notre Dame favored by 22 there. Realistically, this is not one of Ken Nematola's better teams. Teams, teams, teams. Notre Dame coming off a bye after that one over Pitt. Navy, on their hand, coming off a loss to Houston. Notre Dame's probably going to get the job done here, even with it being a huge show out by Navy's fans. So that's it for me today, guys. I'll be back on Wednesday for Group of Five Wednesday. Furthermore, I'll also give my updated Heisman Trophy standings as much as I can with two attack of a low being in, in firm command. And then I will preview this weekend's top Group of Five games. Unlike the Power Five, there are a lot of very important Group of Five games this weekend. So it should be fun to watch. So I'll see you soon. It's Inside You, the College Sports Podcast with your host, Xavier Roddick, signing out. Bye.